When I was growing up, maybe some of you have heard the same axiom, I heard this proverb, it basically said, experience is learning from your own mistakes and wisdom is learning from the mistakes of others, right? If you're a history teacher, that proverb may take the shape that goes something like this. Those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it, right? It's a very wise thing that, that, that even though there isn't something quite like firsthand experience, learning life's lessons for your own, there's still tremendous value in learning from the mistakes or experiences of other people. I mean, you don't have to put your hand on a stove to realize that you'll get burned. Well, when I was in my early 20s, um, I spent a lot of my time on the Sunset Strip. I was trying to break into the music industry. And I remember distinctly in those early days, the excitement was palatable. Any one of us men, young men or women on the Sunset Strip or those areas, uh, Hollywood Boulevard, who are trying to break in, could make it. Our next gig, our next demo could be the thing, and our names would be household names. Um, and a few of the guys that I played with did just that. If you listened to music in the 90s, you heard some of the guys I was with on the Sunset Strip. In those early years, it was exciting, but after a few years of that, the excitement began to diminish. And I remember specifically one night standing on the corner of Hollywood and Vine, right underneath the, right down the street from the Capitol Records building, and I was there with another struggling musician, and we were both handing out flyers to another show that we were doing at 2 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. And at this point, I don't remember if I was at 2 a.m. Wednesday morning handing out flyers or my show was at 2 a.m. on a Wednesday, because we did all those things. And we were there trying to get anybody to come see our show, and we struck up a conversation. And this gentleman was probably about 10, maybe 15 years older than I, and hairline receding a bit. His stomach was starting to pop out. He didn't quite have the rock star look anymore. And as I realized as I was talking to him that he was just as convinced as I was that his star was on the rise. And we started getting this conversation, and, and he said to me that, hey, the next demo that he makes is going to be the one that seals the deal. The next show he gets is his ticket to fame, and that he knows a guy that dated a girl that was the cousin of somebody who divorced a record executive three years earlier, and that must have been fake because he's got this close connection in the industry. And as I was standing there talking to him, handing out flyers, it occurred to me this is going to be me in 10 years. I'm looking at me in 15 years right now. And as I drove home and in my apartment, I was lying in my bed, I thought, if I don't change something drastically now, I've just seen my future. And I don't want to be this guy in his 30s trying to fit in the jeans that only 20-year-olds should wear, receding hairline, and talking about being a rock star. I don't want to be that guy. And, you know, this morning, we're going to be looking in God's Word at a man we don't want to be. Not 10 years, not 15 years, not 20 years, not ever. We're going to see a man that we look at and we hope you say, I don't ever want to be this guy. This is someone who the Lord no longer listens to. He's someone that the Lord had, had turned away from and had actually come against. This was something that the, someone that the Lord actually took everything from. But what makes it so tragic was that this was someone that the Lord once chose. This was someone that the Lord had bestowed upon him his favor. This is someone that the Lord had promised to give everything. So how did he go from having it all to losing it all? 
How did this rising star crash and burn so dramatically so that we can learn and not make the same mistake and not be this guy, not be King Saul? I can sum it up, I think, in one word, and that is this. It's the word disobedience. You see, Saul was forsaken by God because of Saul's consistent disobedience, the results of which are tragic, and we see like no other chapter of the book of 1 Samuel as we do in chapter 28. We'll see that in in Saul's disobedience, God's favor had turned to grief. In other words, his disobedience broke fellowship with God. Disobedience will turn our hearts hard like it did to Saul. And disobedience eventually brings about God's judgment into our lives. Now, there's so much more that can be said about disobedience, but clearly we see this in our text in Saul's life in this chapter, how God, the fellowship he had with God was broken, how his heart became hard and led to hypocrisy, and how God's just judgment came upon him. So if you have a Bible, you should be at 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're going to look at probably one of the most bizarre and somber chapters, certainly of 1 Samuel, if not almost the entire Bible. Now, I just want to give you a sense of the flow of this, because if you were here last week, as I mentioned, uh, last week was part one of a two-part sermon, but the, the interruption is chapter 28. As a matter of fact, chapter 28 is so, in a sense, out of the flow of the grand narrative that you could actually read from the very last verse we studied last week, which is uh, chapter 28, verse 2, and skip all over to part two, chapter 21, verse 9, and you wouldn't miss a beat at all. So to illustrate that, I'm going to read that for you right now. Chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Okay, stop. I could keep reading chapter 29, and we wouldn't have missed a beat of the narrative that we started last week. In other words, all of chapter 28, from verse 3 to the rest of the chapter, you could kind of go without entirely and still make the flow of the main narrative of the book of 1 Samuel. This is important because, as we said several weeks ago, what we're dealing with is an ancient culture that approaches history very different than us moderns. Ancient culture, particularly Mideast culture, was not concerned with recording history in a linear set of events and chronological order, as we do. Objective facts, this happened first, this happened next, and then this happened. History for them, and this explains why some of the Bible seems out of place at times, history for them wasn't recorded necessarily in chronological order. History was recorded in terms of the priority of the narrative that made sense of the point that the author is trying to communicate. So, for example, this passage we're looking at, verse chapter 28, actually takes place the night before verse 1 of the last chapter of 1 Samuel, two chapters later, chapter 31. So in other words, we're going to read chapter 28, and you might be tempted to think, so the next thing that happens is chapter 29, the next thing is 30, and the next thing is 31. That's not how it works. This interaction is so important to the author that he puts it right here because what this shows is we have seen through our study of 1 Samuel Uh, Saul's envy of David, Saul's arrogance in his disobedience against God, Saul's uh, reliance on his own strength. In other words, Saul's blatant disobedience 
that this is so important that the author says you need to see the cumulative effect, cumulative effect of this life in this man. Because this is the last major uh, interaction we have with Saul. And the writer wants to take pains to say this is the result of a life that was dedicated to its own purposes, its own agenda, and turned its back on God. It's that important. We're putting it right here. Now, our modern cinema is actually caught on to this way, right? You've heard of the dream sequence and flash forward. If you watch TV in the last 10 years, we see that. They're jumping all over the place because they're weaving a narrative. Well, the Bible had them beat by about three millennia because that's what they're doing here. The writer says, it is so important to see the results of a disobedient life that before we go on with the narrative of David and his rise to kinghood, I want to show you the results of disobedience in Saul. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read this entire chapter. It's amazing. It's, it's unusual. And then we're going to unpack the three ways we saw disobedience wreak havoc in Saul's life as a warning to us that disobedience could do the same in our own. And Saul, verse 3, had put out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. He did not answer him by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. All of you Star Wars fans are getting excited here. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Verse 10, but Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, well, then whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are waiting against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. 
the Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines, verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. As I said, one of the most bizarre passages, certainly in the book of 1 Samuel, perhaps in the entire Old Testament, if not the Bible. I want to notice some things. We'll get to the shade of Samuel. We'll get to Samuel coming back from the grave in a little bit. But let's look at the first thing, that how disobedience breaks our fellowship with God. We so clearly saw it in Saul's own life. But before we get to that main point in verse 6, do you notice in verse 3 this comment about necromancy? Now, necromancy, for those of you unaware, is basically speaking to the dead, getting counsel from the dead and getting counsel from witches is certainly frowned upon in our culture as in many cultures today. But that only goes to show how much of the gospel has actually transformed this world because speaking to the dead and to witches for uh, counsel is actually common in many places throughout history and increasingly again in our own world. One of the interesting trends happening in countries that have really secularized, in some cases had a strong history within the last uh, millennium and have walked away from that, they have gone to an interesting form of alternative spirituality or ancient religious myths. I saw on the, uh, I've got some slides back here, I saw on the uh, New York Times that Norway, so particularly Scandinavia and Japan in particular, are probably the most secularized countries around. Norway, this is in the New York Times, has a new passion, ghost hunting. Ghosts are frequenting various places in Norway, and it's not ghost busting, but there's an interest in spirits who inhabit the afterworld as they kind of live in our environment. I found this other article in the uh, Christian Science Monitor, Uh, In non-religious Japan, the shrine can still exert a pull, speaking about how the shrines where the uh, Japanese would speak to their ancestors for wisdom is now being packed as much as megachurches in America are being packed. I found this last article in the Atlantic, big in Iceland, paganism. Now, all these articles from these web, all these screen grabs I got were within the last four months. Uh, For the first time in a millennium, a pagan druid shrine is being rebuilt in Iceland. Now, what all these show, folks, is that the human heart instinctually knows that there is more to this world than what we just see around us. And what this trend shows us in these very secularized countries is that when people choose to reject the gospel and believe, don't believe in God, the danger is that they will believe in nothing. The danger is that they'll believe anything. Ancestor worship, ghosts, or asatru pagan myths. When we reject the truth of God's word, the danger isn't that we aren't going to believe and we'll believe nothing. The danger is we can believe anything. Now Saul knew full well that what he was about to do was wrong 
evidenced by the fact that at one time he knew enough to get rid of the mediums, the witches, and the necromancers in the land. We saw that in verse 3. This was in keeping with the Torah. Deuteronomy 18, 10 and 11. If you're a note taker, write that down. Leviticus 20, verse 27. God is clear to remove the mediums, the necromancers, the wizards, the witches. Those are the words used in various translations. Get them out of the land. Now keep in mind, the Torah bans divination not because it is powerless, but because it is wicked. That's an important distinction to make. The Torah bans divination not because it's powerless, not because it doesn't have any efficacy. In some cases, it does. So we shouldn't be surprised to meet people who call a psychic hotline every now and again and say, they were right. See, the Christian worldview doesn't say that there are no other powers out there. We're one of the few worldviews that actually acknowledges there are powers out there we cannot see. But the reason we reject them is because of their wickedness, because of their evilness. Because in essence, God understood that these people will look to the words of the dead rather than the words of the living God to guide their lives. And that trajectory will always lead them to death. That's why they were banned. But Saul, in a tragic experience in verse 6, did you note that? When he went to the Lord and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. He didn't answer him by dreams. He didn't answer him by Urim. And he didn't answer him by prophets. Complete, absolute radio silence. This is a compelling point we need to remember. That when we choose to consistently ignore the voice of the Lord and live that, our lives that way, whether it's an active rejection of him or it's just really subtle, when we choose to ignore him over and over and over again, one day we will get what we've always been asking with our life, silence. You know, as a pastor, I tragically see this happen so often, that people will ignore God's word, they'll ignore his character, they'll ignore his commands in their life, and they might do it actively, they'll never step foot in the church, they don't even want to have a talk, conversation about it, or they might do it subtly, they will be here and not... Hear the, hear the word come over them, but do nothing different. And when the bottom of life falls out, which it inevitably does, unfortunately for all of us, they end up asking, well, where's God? Where is he? And the reality is, he's right where you put him, away from you. And now you are getting what you have asked for, to be left alone. And you are experiencing the impotency of the idols of your heart of autonomy and individualism. And you're realizing those idols will betray you and they're not enough. And when you need him most, he'll be exactly where you put him, away from you. Now Saul did that with his disobedient life. Our disobedience does in fact put a strain on our relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that it de de determines your relation salvifically and you'll never be saved. That's not what I'm getting at here. But I am making the point that our disobedience strains the relationship we have with the Lord. Dallas Willard, he was a, a USC uh, professor, professor of philosophy writes about this illustration, a two-and-a-half-year-old girl in her backyard discovered the secret to making uh, mud, was what she called warm chocolate. And her grandmother, who was with her, watching her, facing away for her, after having to clean up the mess, told Larissa not to do it anymore and turned her chair to keep her eye on Larissa. 
We find in the innocence of a two-and-a-half-year-old child the deceitfulness of sin as, as Larissa continues to make warm chocolate but says to her grandmother, don't look at me, Nana, okay? Don't look at me, Nana, okay? And Dallas Willard says, thus the tender soul of a little child shows us how necessary it is that we be unobserved in our wrongs. He writes, anytime we choose to do wrong or to withhold doing right, we choose hiddenness as well. It may be that out of all the prayers that are ever spoken, he says, the most common one, the quietest one, the one we least acknowledge making is simply this, God, don't look at me. You know, that was the very first prayer prayed after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. That was the very first prayer when God came into the garden and he wanted to walk with Adam and Eve. And he says, Adam, where are you? In chapter 3, verse 10, Adam says this, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. So I hid from you. God, don't look at me. See, the chief way that we can often show our disloyalty to Christ, the chief way we can do this is when we make small what God intended to make big. And when we ignore what God intended us to listen to, when we make little of what God makes great, that is the chief way we show a disloyalty to Christ because sin changes the texture of our relationship with God and it does so primarily because of the second tragic result of disobedience in our passage. Sin hardens our heart. Look at verse 9. It shows us that Saul at one time knew what the right thing to do was. Even the necromancer, the medium said, hey, I'm not a, I'm not a necromancer. Come on. Saul got rid of all the necromancers. But look at verse 10. Verse 10, how ironic, but Saul swore to her by the Lord. Saul would swear by the very Lord he so often disobeyed. He invoked God's protection on something God clearly had previously condemned. In defiance of Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 20, Saul said, no, 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 you're okay, this is fine, I need you to do this. Saul is calling on God to approve the very thing he condemns. His disobedience has hardened his heart to the word of God, that he can actually invoke religious oaths with a, while living in a sinful lifestyle. We see, clearly sees it here that his disobedience to God had hardened his heart to God's word. He disproves with his life what he promises with his lips. It's absolute hypocrisy in Saul. And that hypocrisy is dangerous. And it's so subtle, it can creep into any one of us. When we can go on willfully sinning, willfully sinning, knowing that we're harboring sin as opposed to fighting against it, and still profess to have a, relig a relationship with Christ, hypocrisy has taken root. And the sad thing is, when, our, when hypocrisy takes root and our hearts get hardened, we can no longer even feel God's word trying to bring conviction, and that begins a scary cycle, doesn't it? When we can have a religious exterior, but have an interior that's wrecked and covered by sin. So what's God's remedy for that? Because we're all prone to it, right? What's God's remedy? God's remedy is the truth and transparency of accountability. To be known amongst God's people so that people can see when something's happening to you, when deceit begins to take over, and they can speak into your life. 
Folks, that's why in the last maybe six months or the last year, you've been hearing me banging the drum about involvement in your local church, to be deliberate, to overlap your lives with other people from this fellowship so that you yourself can be pointed out if there's deception happening in your life. Do you know what one of God's uh, antidotes to self-deception is? One of his most strongest antidotes is the local church. Let me just take you to the book of Hebrews chapter 3. The writer says this in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. So, so who's he writing to when he says brothers? They're other Christians, right? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But, verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So he's writing to Christians and saying, be careful, be careful, because this can happen in your own hearts, but here's the antidote. Speak to each other every day and watch out for the deceitfulness of sin. Who gets deceived first when sin enters your life? Who gets deceived first? You do. And God's antidote is other brothers and sisters in your life who can see what's going on and love you enough to say, brother, sister, I think the deceitfulness of sin is blinding you in this area. Can I talk to you? And, and, and the reason that's important in a local church is, let's be honest, folks. Let's be honest. I, I feel like when I get passionate, I get very colloquial, so I'm just going to let it roll. We can fake the funk one hour a week with people, can't we? If I'm just in a Bible study with you one time a week and that's all you see me, I can fake it. Right? But if I'm with you in service on Sunday morning, and I'm in one of your homes on Wednesday night, and I'm serving with you some other time throughout the week, it gets a lot harder, doesn't it? When you come over to my home because I'm exercising hospitality and you see me with my kids, or I come to your home and I see you with your kids, it gets a little bit harder to fake it, isn't it? Paul says, or the writer of the Hebrews says, look, the antidote to self-deception is to be involved in people's lives. And the best way to do that is to overlap your lives with people who you already are with together in a local church. We need to watch out against the hardness of sin. And so, back to our text, this witch brings up the spirit of Samuel. I know a lot of people are, are wondering about that, and there's been a lot of ink spilt on this. I actually think that this medium brought up Samuel, and, and here are four quick reasons why. Number one, the plain statement of the text in chapter 28, verse 12, says in the Hebrew, she brought up Samuel. So, Linguistically, it says that she brought up Samuel. Number two, the medium reacted to seeing the spirit of Samuel with genuine terror, and it leads me to believe this might have been the first time she actually raised somebody from the grave. She was genuinely terrified of what she saw. Number three, the thing spoken by the spirit to Saul, the spirit of Samuel to Saul, allude to prior conversations that they had had. And the fourth reason Samuel's message to Saul was consistent with everything he had said to him as, a, as the word of the Lord to Saul. And that message that Samuel brought to Saul is our third point. That disobedience will bring God's judgment. Saul was concerned about the Philistines. He, he wanted to know, what, what, what is he going to do? He has to face the enemies of God. And he had forgotten that the whole reason for his kingship was to fight the Philistines. But as you recall from last week, he had squandered it. What did he spend most of his kingship doing the latter half? Pursuing David rather than fighting the Philistines. Living in disobedience. 
Sin makes things confusing and hazy, and, and Saul should have known for this reason God raised him up. But because of his disobedience that he knew about, and you recall chapter 24 and 26, he confessed his sin. He knew that he wasn't living the way he should, and he was right to wonder if God's presence was going to be with him. And he was hoping that from the words of Samuel that there might be some kind of reverse of the judgment that was proclaimed on him. In much the same way, we sometimes don't want the, the, the dark side of God's word in our lives. And that is this. We reap what we sow, right? We reap what we sow and we cannot defy God's word without consequence. By one of the most gut-wrenching uh, illustrations of this is uh, a woman by the name of Jan Davis. This is from the Associated Press. She was a base jumper, uh, an expert parachutist, and she and five others wanted to base jump off of El Capitan in Yos Yosemite, 3,200-foot uh, jump, even though it was illegal because many people had died from that, and so they barred base jumping off of Yo uh, El Capitan. Ironically enough, their jump was to prove how safe base jumping was. But tragically, it wasn't for her as she plummeted 3,200 feet to her death, trying to protest the, the law that was wrong. It's gut-wrenching. It's on YouTube. I, could, I didn't have the heart to watch it this morning as I could hear one of her friends looking over the cliff, yelling to her to open her chute. And as her husband videotaped it, Folks, we cannot defy laws, whether physical or the ones that man gives, and think there is no consequence. Saul is a perfect example that he defied the law and he's going to be judged severely. Verse 16, verse 18 made it very clear. And finally in verse 20, Saul collapses in regret, in grief. But notice, this isn't the first time Saul has collapsed, hasn't he? As a matter of fact, in chapter 15, and then in chapter 19, then again in chapter 26, each time Saul was confronted with his sin and he collapsed in grief. Yet for all this conviction, Saul did not change. Folks, insight is not change. Insight is not change. Change only happens, guess what? When change happens. Insight into what God is teaching you is not change. Change only happens when you say, this is what God demands of me. This is what God's asking of me. I need to be different. Some of you are old enough to remember Jack Abramoff, a uh, disgraced political lobbyist back in the early 2000s. He said, I knew what I was doing was wrong. God had sent me a thousand hints, and I didn't listen to any of them until God set off a nuclear bomb. Don't wait for a nuclear bomb to go off in your life. The situation between your life and Saul, vastly different, I guarantee it. But it's the same kind of dynamics that can be at play. Are we seeking to be obedient? We may not be seeking deliberately to be disobedient, but are we seeking to obey the voice of the Lord, or is it optional? When we choose to ignore his word in our life, are we aware of the severity of that decision? Lori and I used to tell the kids when they were growing up, and we still tell them now, half-hearted obedience is only full disobedience looking good, right? Half-hearted obedience is only full disobedience looking good, and that was Saul. 
you don't want to be this man in 10, 15 years. You don't ever want to be this man. You don't ever want to be this man now. But let me ask you, are you tempted to obey? Or excuse me, are you tempted to disobey? I am, right? Paul the apostle was tempted to disobey. He said the thing, that he does the things that he does not want to do. The hymn writer of whom we sang today, Robert Robinson, was tempted to disobey as well. That's why he wrote those words, Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. If you're prone to disobedience like I'm prone to disobedience, you don't have to live in despair. Because at the end of the day, it is not our obedience that ultimately matters. It is the obedience that Christ lived on our behalf. And so that's why Robert Robertson can say, Lord, I'm giving you my heart because I'm prone to wander. So you take it and you seal it. He's not saying by that that now I'm going to live a righteous, completely obedient life. What he's saying is that I trust in your salvific work that you're going to seal my heart even though I'm prone to wander. And I will probably continue to do so. But my trust is not in my track record. My trust is in Christ's perfect work on my behalf. And that's what I'm putting my trust into. So our disobedience, if you are a Christian, is not a matter of whether or not God will allow you into your eternal reward. That's not it. That is a done deal if your faith is in Christ. But our disobedience, like with God, in that vertical dimension, has a horizontal result as well. My disobedience, your disobedience, will break fellowship with people, right? It will harden your heart. And it will have consequences in your life. We don't want to be those kind of people. We know that the goal is not perfect obedience because we simply cannot. I was talking to a man. Let me conclude with this. I was talking to a man in Michigan, young man, struggling with pornography. He was doing a Skype counseling session. I said, I want you to remember something. Let's say his name was Kiro. I said, I want you to remember something, Kiro. If you could overcome this, If you could do it on your own, if it was just a matter of you trying harder and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, you would never need Jesus. The reason Jesus came is because you can't beat this. Now, that was an excuse to continue on. I said, Kiro, you want to live in obedience because that's the sphere of God's maximum blessing. But at the end of the day, the thing that motivates you in that direction is not you trying harder. It's recognizing Jesus did it for you because you cannot. But one day, one day, on that side of eternity, you will. But again, not because you did it, but because Christ brought to bring about that good work that he promised that he started in us here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, There are many characters we look at Samuel and say, I want to be like that. Saul is one where we say, I don't want to be that man. And as we see the culmination of a life of disobedience, Lord, in your grace, would you help us to be a people who are fueled to obedience because of grace? Lord, as we sang that it's, it's deeper than my sin, it's greater than my past, grace is the thing we lean in on. And we have it at the foot of the cross. Father, I pray that if anybody here does not understand or have that grace, that, Lord, you would have them speak to any one of us here on the platform to talk about the grace they have that can conquer any amount of disobedience because of Christ's perfect obedience for us. In his name we pray. Amen.
The following message titled, The King and the Witch, was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.cccLH.org. Good morning. 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 Good